Thank you. Wow. Good morning. Wow. That song that gets that gets you know. If we know the Lord is our Savior, how marvelous, how wonderful. That's our song forever. In heaven, I'm certain I'll be able to sing it well. I can't. I can't do that right now, but not like they do. But Pastor John is traveling. He's on vacation. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him, right? He deserves that. Yeah, he and Kay are traveling, so uh, he will be gone this weekend, and uh, he's returning next weekend, but he won't be preaching next weekend, so it's my privilege to get to be with you for two weeks, and I, oh, that's, that's really kind, <laughs> thank you, that's really sweet. I hope you're in the mood for a really good story, because we're going to look at one of the best, greatest stories in the Old Testament. It is so powerful. I'm glad we have two weeks because we're going to do it in two parts. If John was gone longer, we could do it in four parts, but we'll do it in two because <laughs> it's that good. Uh, before we get into the story, please, let's bow our heads and let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Dear Father, we come for you. Uh, we come because we love you. And yes, Lord, how wonderful, how marvelous is your love for us. You sent Jesus to die so that we could live forever and be with you forever. And Father, we just pray today as we open your word, we we did not come. We do not want to hear my opinions or any opinion of anybody. We want to hear your word that only your Holy Spirit can teach us. We pray for that, Father. Open our hearts, open our eyes, our ears, our minds to see and hear things we've never seen and heard before. Even if this story is familiar to us, Lord, show us something new. Show us something that we can live with today that will empower us to serve you more boldly. Father, we pray for Pastor John and Kay. Just you bless them. Give them traveling mercies wherever they go. Refresh them. Bring him back safely to us. We love him so. And Father, we do pray for the men and women that are fighting the fires in our area. Lord, we pray that they can get that fire contained and there would be no loss or injury uh, of life or person or or property. Father, we pray. Now, Lord, we just come to you expecting great things from your word as you promised we will have. In Jesus' name, amen. Our story is in 1 Kings. 1 Kings in the Old Testament. 11th book of the Old Testament. Depending on your Bible, it's probably in the neighborhood of page 300, somewhere around there. It's going to be after 1 and 2 Samuel. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 18, but we have to stop first in chapter 17. So we're going to start at chapter 17 because there's somebody important we need to meet. (coughs) While you're turning there, let me tell you that 874 years before Christ was born. So 874 B.C., a man named Ahab became king of Israel, and he reigned for about 20 years. At that time, Israel was split. So the nation of Israel was the, the northern kingdom, and then Judah was the southern kingdom, and Ahab ruled the northern kingdom. He was king, and he was strong militarily. He was strong politically, But wow, he was corrupt. He was the most wicked ruler king Israel ever had. In fact, if you look at chapter 16 of 1 Kings, it tells you that he did, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than anyone before him. That's a big indictment because there were a lot of loser kings before Ahab, but he was the worst of the lot. Ahab did not worship the Lord. He, wor- he and his queen Jezebel worshiped Baal and Asherah. 
Baal was the, the supreme god of, of ancient Canaan and Phoenicia. And Asherah was the Canaanite mother goddess of love. And under King Ahab, the people of Israel kind of became equal opportunity worshipers. They wanted to keep all the gods happy. They wanted to keep all their options open. So they just would worship whichever god was popular. So Lord, yes, we'll worship the Lord. Oh, Baal, we'll worship Baal, Asherah. Whichever god was popular, they would worship that god. Now the people thought they were being open-minded. But what they were being was blatantly disobedient to the Lord their God who commanded them to have him as their one and only true God. So God sent a messenger to King Ahab on behalf of the people. And this is the person we need to meet here in verse 1 of chapter 17. 1 Kings 17.1 Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah was a prophet of the Lord. The word prophet means he was a called man of God. A prophet doesn't decide to be a prophet. I can't just decide I'm a prophet. The prophet, God takes all the initiative. The Lord himself selects the prophet, calls the prophet, and sends the prophet wherever he wants him to go. In this case, God sent Elijah to meet King Ahab to deliver this stern message that included a severe punishment for their disobedience and their idol worship. God was trying to make his message as clear as possible because that's what God does. So the people couldn't decide who to worship, so they sent them Elijah. Do you know what Elijah's name means? Elijah's name means the Lord is God. That should have given them a clue when they were trying to figure out who to worship, when a prophet shows up whose name is the Lord is God. So, when King Ahab met Elijah for the first time, Elijah walked right up and there was no political correctness. You've got to love Elijah. There was no God save the king or, or your royal highness. There was none of that. He just got right down to business and told the most popular and the most powerful man in Israel. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, Elijah said, I come in the name of the God who lives and I serve. In other words, King, your God is not the God of Israel and your God is dead. And then he went on to say, to prove my God is the only God, there won't be any dew, there won't be any rain in Israel for quite a while. So I'll see you in a few years. Have a nice day. And left. That was his meeting with the king. The book of James, we're going to put the book of James, uh, James 5, we'll put that on the screen for you because the, in the New Testament it tells us actually how long the drought lasted. And it also tells us something really important we need to understand about Elijah. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Elijah prayed. And the rain and dew stopped for three and a half years. Then he prayed again and God brought the rain back. It sounds like, if you look at it at face value, it sounds like Elijah is some kind of superhero. He has supernatural powers. But the book of James just told us 
something we need to understand. He was just an ordinary human being like any of us here. But he did have a supernatural power. And it's the same supernatural power you and I have, the power of prayer. Elijah prayed earnestly, which means he prayed with conviction. He took prayer seriously, and God answered his prayers. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody needed something from you, and you really, really wanted to help them, but there was nothing you could do? There was nothing, there was nothing you could do to help their situation. And did you find yourself saying, Oh, I wish there was something tangible I could do to help, but I guess I'll just pray. I'll just pray. You ever find yourself saying that? Sometimes I think we think of prayer as the consolation prize. You know, we want to do something tangible. The Bible even tells us to help, so we yes, we want to do something tangible, but when there's nothing we can do, we settle for prayer. The Word of God is teaching us something we need to understand. Prayer is tangible. When we pray, we are coming to the throne of Almighty God, and we're bringing our needs and the needs of others, and we are placing them right into the palm of his loving, almighty hand. Elijah prayed, and not one drop of rain or dew fell in that land. A whole nation was impacted because one person prayed. Your prayers and my prayers matter. When we pray, we can change our whole life. When we pray, we can change the life of someone else. We can change this church. We can change this nation when we pray. Our great God does great things when we pray. So Elijah prayed, and God sent a severe drought to Israel that caused a famine. Now the people should have seen this coming because many years before Elijah, another prophet named Moses told the people what would happen if they ever worshipped any other false gods. Let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 23 to 24. It says, The sky over your head will be bronze. That's not good. The ground beneath you, iron. You can't grow crops in iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. This was the warning from Moses. What would happen if you turned to worship other gods? God always keeps his word. Okay, it's actually kind of funny that God sent a drought to Israel. Why is that funny? I'll tell you why it's funny, so you can get in on the joke. The uh, Baal was the storm god. Baal was the storm god. He was the god of agriculture. He was associated as the god of giver of life. It was Baal's job to provide the rain, to give the crops what they needed and the herds and the flocks. So Elijah prayed, and Baal, the storm god, got all dried up. He became the dust god because one man prayed. Now as time passed, this drought got worse and worse, and a very angry king Ahab started looking for Elijah all over his nation, but he never found him. You know why? Let's read. It's in uh, back in First Kings chapter 17. We read verse one. Let's read verse two to six. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to Elijah: Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, I, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. 
So Elijah did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. God tucked Elijah away where king couldn't find him. And just like God provided manna from heaven for Moses and the children of Israel as they wandered, God provided raven cuisine for Elijah to sustain him all those years. The Bible doesn't tell us where the ravens got the bread and meat. I wonder if it, they got the bread and meat from the king's table. And I just, it just, it, that's just a fun thought. I don't know where he got it. But the point is, God put Elijah in a place where there was water and food during this drought and famine. Thanks to his feathered flock of servers, he got two meals a day like clockwork. God is so creative in the way he cares for us. We can never predict how he's going to provide. We pray, Lord, help us with this, and maybe we're picturing what he's going to do. God is so creative in how he takes care of us. We we just can never predict what that's going to look like. Anyone who thinks that being a believer is dull has never met the Lord. It's fun. So Elijah was tucked safely away where he could learn how to rely on God day by day. If those ravens didn't come, he would start. So every morning and every night, you have to look, see if he hears those, sees those ravens coming to bring him what he needs to live. This training program was a day-by-day reliance on the Lord, and this became vital to Elijah's ministry, as we'll see <clears throat> this week and next week. You know, sometimes God tucks us away, too. He kind of pulls us out of the game for a while. He takes us aside where he can have our undivided attention, away from our, the hustle and bustle of our lives and our ministries. He needs to teach us something. When you feel the Lord taking you aside, or if you feel he's taking you aside now, don't resist that. Go willingly, because he wants to teach you and show you the greatest way to live on earth. And that is to trust God minute by minute, day by day. While Elijah was hiding or being hidden, King Ahab was literally sending people out all over his kingdom Asking, have you seen Elijah? Have you seen Elijah? And if anybody said no, because nobody had, if if they said no, the king made them swear on their lives they hadn't seen him. Too bad the king didn't ask the ravens. They knew where Elijah was. Let's turn to chapter 18 now, uh, starting with verse 16. This is our main text. And we now are going to jump ahead three and a half years. For three and a half years, Israel has suffered through a severe drought and famine. Then God sent Elijah back with another message. Elijah met a man named Obadiah. Obadiah is really interesting. He was a devout follower of the Lord, but he had to keep it a secret because by this time, Queen Jezebel was killing anyone that spoke out for the Lord. So Obadiah actually hid 100 prophets of God in caves and he brought them food and water himself to protect them but he didn't dare profess his faith outwardly in the Lord because the queen would kill him. So when Elijah met Obadiah, Elijah said he wanted to have a meeting with the king and he sent Obadiah to to deliver the message and Obadiah kind of freaked out a little bit because he's like, wait a minute, the king's been looking for you and you've been hard to find. If I go tell the king I know where you are and he comes and you're not there, it's going to be my neck. And, And Elijah assured him, no, I will be there. So Elijah sent Obadiah to arrange a meeting with the king, not in Jezreel where the king was, but on on Elijah's turf. 
So let's pick it up here in verse 16 of chapter 18, because this is funny as well. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, told him about the meeting. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. You have to picture this in your mind. For three and a half years, this king, this angry king has been looking for Elijah everywhere all over his kingdom. Couldn't find him. Then one day the palace administrator comes in and says, "Uh, King, God's prophet will see you now. And he's not coming to you. You have to go to him. Apparently the king was so mad he didn't stand on ceremony. He just went right to the meeting place and didn't wait for Elijah to come to him. And I would imagine King Ahab was mumbling and fuming angrily the whole way. Wait till I get my hands on him. You know, that kind of thing. Verse 17, when King Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? It's always helpful to start off a meeting with name calling. Right? When two meetings can't, two sides can't get along, you start off with name calling. That always brings people together. Like that. So clearly Ahab blamed Elijah and Elijah's God for all of Israel's troubles. You know, this is typical behavior we still see today. People who do not believe in the Lord blame God when something bad happens. So that's what's going on here. I bet the king started shouting the second he got within earshot. He could see Elijah. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah wasn't intimidated one bit. He gave it right back to the king. Look at verse 18. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Elijah told the king that everything that's going on bad is because of him. He has himself to blame for not worshiping the one true God. I'll bet this king in particular was not used to people talking to him that way. But the Lord was clearly orchestrating this meeting between them because the king kept listening and Elijah kept right on talking. Look at verse 19. Now Elijah's giving the orders. Elijah says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah proposed a showdown, right? The king could bring 850 of his favorite priests and prophets to face off against Elijah all by himself. Why would the king go along with this plan? Why would the king consent to this plan that Elijah came up with? The Bible doesn't tell us, so I want to share my own speculation with you. Please don't take notes on this. This is not inspired. This is just me having too much time on my hands thinking through why did the king go along with this plan? If I was King Ahab and my country just suffered three and a half years of miserable drought and my storm god that I'm making everybody worship did not even produce one drop to help, like any good politician, I'd find somebody to blame. And Elijah would be my guy. And I would be bad-mouthing and bashing Elijah every chance I got for three and a half years so the people would hate him and not hate me. I don't know if that happened or not. I'm just imagining that's how it could be. Because if it did, I could see why Ahab would go along with his plan because he's thinking, well, good. When Elijah finally appears in public for the first time after three and a half years, this angry, thirsty mob will tear him limb from limb. 
Did you notice that Elijah said, bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table? That's a bold thing for him to say. He's clearly saying, look, he, he knew the queen was their benefactor. These were government-sponsored priests. So Elijah said to the king, he, was call, he, he not only was calling out the, the priests of Baal and Asherah, he was calling out the king and queen right to his face. And again, the king accepted Elijah's challenge. Look at verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. So the king used his clout. He went throughout the land, and I bet you it was a sellout. I bet you he had standing room only because he called everybody to Mount Carmel. When everyone gathered, the king might have given some royal speech, but we don't know. That's not recorded for us. But we do know what Elijah said. And this, this one verse here in verse 21 is critical for you and I this morning. Let's read it. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. <clears throat> thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people covering that mountainside. Can't you picture, were they sneering, were they booing, were they shouting threats as Elijah stepped forward to speak? I bet you the tension, you could cut it with a knife on that mountain. But Elijah's question was so packed with meaning for that particular audience, it silenced them. People knew the law of Moses. They didn't obey it, but they knew it. Especially they knew the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain, and they especially knew the first commandment. We're going to put that on the screen for you now from Exodus 20, <clears throat> 1 to 3. The first commandment. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Period. You shall have no other gods before me does not mean that God wants a lineup and he wants to be first and then we can have other gods after him. What this means in the Hebrew is you are to have no other gods in my sight or literally in front of my face. God in first commandment means God must be worshipped exclusively as the one and only true God, period. <clears throat> the people knew they were disobeying this commandment. So they had nothing to say for themselves. I bet a deafening hush fell over that crowd. If you were standing on Mount Carmel at that moment, you could look around and see the throng of people and not one person speaking. Imagine being in Angel Stadium, sellout, standing room only, and not one person was making a sound. Uh, the only noise was probably the gentle rustle of the breeze that morning on Mount Carmel. I bet you everybody was looking down at their sandals or down at the ground because they were ashamed to look Elijah in the eye when he asked them that question. Elijah said, how long will you waver between two opinions? This word waver is interesting in the Hebrew. It can mean to hop or it can mean to leap or dance. In fact, we'll see this word used in verse 26 when it describes how the prophets of Baal leaped around their altar. <clears throat> so maybe Elijah was making a pun. Maybe he was saying to the people, how long are you going to dance back and forth, leap back and forth like the prophets of Baal? Or if Elijah was using the word to mean hop, he was saying, 
How long are you going to act like a bird that just hops from branch to branch, back and forth, and never settles? This is a really good picture of what the people were doing. They followed the Lord when that suited them, and then they followed Baal when that suited them. Back and forth they went, and they never, ever committed their heart and soul to follow the Lord or Baal. They tried to stay neutral, down the middle. (coughs) About 900 years after Elijah asked this question, someone asked Jesus a question. They asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And in Matthew 22:37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. The greatest from commandment from God is to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Give him everything we have so there's nothing left to give to any other false god. <clears throat> Does this even apply to us today? Are there false gods that we have to worry about? There are not too many churches for Baal and Asherah anymore. So here in Anaheim Hills in the year 2015, do we even need to worry about worshiping false gods? Well, first let's define what a false god is. Simply, a false god is anything or anyone that we let rule our lives other than the Lord. A false god is anything or anyone that we let rule our lives other than the Lord. So let's talk about a couple of false gods you might have heard of in the world today. First one is called self. S-E-L-F. Self. Self can be male or female. Self is a god that demands a lot of attention. Self wants to be thought of first before anyone else or anything else. Self says to the Lord, stay out of this area of my life. This is my business, not yours. I will give you time, Lord, on Sunday or Saturday night and some during the week, but you have no say-so over my free time. Lord, you have no say-so over my thought life or my business dealings or my entertainment choices or my desires or the way I treat people or whatever it may be. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, The natural life knows that if the spiritual life gets hold of it, All its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed. And it's ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. So true. When you try to throw self off the throne, self is going to fight back with everything he or she has. And it's going to hurt. But self is not the most powerful false god in the world today. It's another one. The most powerful false god is a very attractive monster named pride. Pride can be male or female. It's pride that made the devil the devil. And pride leads us to every sin. Pride is a complete anti-God state of mind. Pride rejects any authority other than its own. Pride says to the Lord, I'm doing things my way. I will not listen to you, and I will never give up the throne to you. But one way to check to see how pride is doing in your life is is if you think about the word surrender. Have you surrendered everything you have to Christ? If the idea of surrendering worries you a little bit or is uncomfortable for you, then pride is sitting on that throne. We have some other false gods in Anaheim Hills in the year 2015. I'll read you a short list, but there are many. These gods want to rule us. These gods want our worship. They have names like career, 
materialism, success, popularity, status, and the list goes on. If we allow the Lord to rule, so that the Lord rules our businesses, if the Lord rules our bank account, if we allow the Lord to rule our popularity and rule our successes and all the things, he will bless us beyond our wildest dreams. And all of these things will be the greatest joy of our life. But, oh my gosh, we live in a culture that worships these things. They worship them as gods. We are surrounded. These, these false gods are attractive and they're seductive and they want to take our worship and we're foolish. If we think we can serve the Lord one moment and then turn around and just be all about our work and all about worshiping our money or our pride or ourselves. That's why I think if Elijah was here today, he'd ask us this question this way. He'd say, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if your career is your God, or you yourself are your God, or your money is your God, then go follow that. We could spend all day here, but we don't have all day. Let's move on. Let's continue reading in 1 Kings 18, because the contest now between Elijah and the prophets of Baal is about to heat up, if you excuse the pun. If you don't get the joke, you will in a second. 1 Kings 18:21 to 24. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Now remember Elijah originally told Ahab to bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. He does not mention the 400 prophets of Asherah here. So either they were a no-show or they were just secondary in importance and he didn't bother to mention them. But let's review the rules of this contest that Elijah just laid out so we're clear. Baal's team would take a bull and prepare it on their altar. And notice that Elijah even let them go first and select the bull they wanted. So there was no, Elijah was giving them every advantage. You even get to pick the bull you want. So the prophets of Baal would prepare the bull on their altar. Elijah would prepare the bull on the Lord's altar. <clears throat> Whichever God sent down fire to consume that offering would be the undisputed winner. He would be claimed God, the one true God. And the people finally found their voices and they said, yes, what you say is good. Or in this day and age, they probably would have said, let's do it. Game on. So Elijah gave the prophets of Baal every advantage, and we're going to see more as he goes on. However, Elijah kept one advantage for himself, only one. Elijah made sure he had the Lord on his side. And for that one and only reason, Elijah all by himself had those 450 prophets of Baal completely outnumbered. Verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. <clears throat> Call on the name of your God, but do not light a fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. 
and they danced around the altar they had made. Elijah let them choose their own stake, <coughs> prepare it the way they wanted, put it on the altar, and go first. <coughs> and they called on their God. They shouted and danced from morning until noon. Aren't you impressed with their prayer life? I am. These people could pray and dance for hours. How many of us could do that? These were passionate and sincere men and maybe even women. And they did everything they could to get Baal's attention, but Baal did not answer. You know, there's a popular opinion that says, as long as you're sincere, whatever you believe is okay. As long as you're sincere, like these prophets of Baal were, it's okay. But the Lord says, no, the sincerity of your faith is not the issue. The object of your faith is the issue. Sincere faith in the wrong God is sincerely wrong. Have you ever put your sincere faith in a chair that broke when you sat on it? I've done that. No comments, please. There was nothing wrong with my faith. There was something wrong with the chair. I put my sincere faith, my strong faith, in a weak chair, and I was on the ground. Our faith is only as good as the God we trust. The prophets of Baal called on their God all morning, but nothing happened, not one thing. And after a while, Elijah figured maybe they needed a little coaching. This would help them out. So look what he does here in verse 27. This gets pretty funny. At noon, so they've been going for hours now. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and he must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention, meaning the heavens were silent. Baal did not show you know, athletes today think they're pretty clever. They think they invented smack talk. This started in 850 B.C. with Elijah. Can you imagine? Think about it. Can you imagine the noise 450 prophets of Baal made as they shouted? They didn't just whisper. They were shouting and dancing and leaping around the altar. You know how noisy that would be? But here's Elijah over there. He's saying, hey, shout louder. Let's hear some noise. Come on, guys. It's pretty funny. Then he taunted them. He said, surely... Baal is a god. And the prophets answered back, of course he's a god, but don't call us Shirley. Elijah went on and said, <clears throat> maybe your god is lost in deep thought, or he's too busy right now, or maybe he's traveling, or he's a really sound sleeper. When Elijah said, perhaps your god is busy, the Hebrew words could be translated, perhaps your God is engaged in business. And this could be a polite way of saying, perhaps Baal was in the bathroom. He was taunting them. The Canaanite religion, by the way, portrayed Baal as a God that is a deep ponderer of deep thoughts. And he did travel to go fight wars and things. So maybe Elijah was offering sarcastic support for what he knew the priests believed about their God. All of Elijah's little ver verbal jabs just got the priest to get louder and now they took out their knives and their spears and they started slicing and dicing themselves to get their God's attention. And we have to stop right here and make a note. 
that this is what false religions have in common. False religions want to tell us how to get God's attention. That's what they're all about, how to get God's attention. Here's what you have to do. It's usually give money until it hurts. But they want to get you to get God's attention. But the Word of God tells us we don't need to get God's attention because we already have His attention. Romans 5.8. You probably remember this when we studied it with Pastor John a little while ago. Romans 5.8 is wonderful. It says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God proved His attention and His love while we were sinners, while we were ignoring God, while we were seeking our own way and not giving Him a thought, God was paying so much attention to us, He saw our, our helpless condition, and He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us. We have God's attention. So here's a fact of life. Here's an absolute fact of life from the Word of God. We do not need to get God's attention. What we need to do is give God our attention. We have to give God our attention. The prophets of Baal had plenty of zeal and tons of faith. But they trusted in a false god. So their faith failed and their god did not answer. So when time for the evening sacrifice came, Baal's prophets were out of time, probably out of blood. And God, their god Baal did not send down a fire, smoke, a whisk, nothing. Time for the evening sacrifice means it was probably 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So they had all day. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Notice the altar of the Lord had been torn down, probably by Jezebel. I love how Elijah did this. This is so cool. He had all day <coughs> to repair that altar. While everybody was over there watching Baal's 450 men and women dance around and cut themselves and blood splattering every place. That had to be entertaining. While everybody's watching that, he could have had all day to get the altar all spruced up and cleaned up and tidied up for this, this sacrifice, but he didn't. He waited. He left it there in, in shambles because he wanted to get everybody's opinion, or not opinion, everybody's attention so they could watch him rebuild that altar. He, they wanted them to see the altar they should have never let get torn down in the first place, and he rebuilt it right in front of them. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. I bet you he grabbed one of the stones one at a time. Probably said the name of the tribe as he moved each rock. He took his time. He wanted the people to remember it was the Lord, not Baal, that was the God of your fathers. And it was the Lord, not Baal, that even gave you your name, Israel. Verse 32, with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. That's interesting. Prophets of Baal didn't build a trench. Elijah built a trench. We'll come back to that. Clearly he's got something going on there. But notice he built the altar in the name of the Lord, not in his own name. This is the model for us at this church and for all of us that do ministry. We are never to build a church for our ministries in our own name. Everything we do is in the name of the Lord. Then Elijah gave the priests of Baal one more gigantic advantage. Let's read about it. Verse 33. Now we'll understand the trench. Elijah arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. 
Then Elijah said to the false prophets of Baal, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. These were not like pickle jars. We need to think about like gallon drums. These were big, big containers of water. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Elijah told the priests of Baal <clears throat> to drown the Lord's water altar with so much water that that wood soaked up every drop it could hold and then the rest of it just spilled out and filled that trench. The trench was deep enough to hold two seahs of seed. Well, how much water would that be? I looked it up. Two seahs of seed, the measurement equivalent would be four gallons of water. I found that equivalent on a website called convertme.com. I thought that'd be a great name for a church website, wouldn't it? Convertme.com. So Baal's altar, bone dry wood, not a spark, not a wisp of smoke. God's altar was hopelessly flooded. And we'll see what happens next. But first, let's not miss the irony. Israel was three and a half years into a dreadful, terrible drought. Water was the most precious commodity in the land. And here was Elijah telling him, pour it out, waste it in front of all these thirsty, desperate people that needed that water so badly. I think Elijah was giving the people one more painful reminder of what their disobedience to the Lord caused. This drought was because of their disobedience. So now, let's see what Elijah does. So Elijah prepared the altar of the Lord. He built the stones. He put the wood. He put the bull. Now it was Elijah's turn. And Elijah started dancing for hours and shouting. And he got a knife and he started cutting himself to get God's attention. Is that what Elijah did? Let's look. Verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. There's that man of prayer again. Stepped forward and he prayed. And this is not the long prayer that took all day. This is probably about a 30-second prayer. Look, he said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Everything Elijah did was at the Lord's command. He was following the word of God. When we follow the word of God, there's no limit to what the Lord will do through us. Verse 37, he's, he's finishing his prayer. He says, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38, then, or right then, or immediately, the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and burned up the wood and the stones and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. God's answer was immediate. It was spectacular. And it was absolute. God's fire consumed the bull, the soaked wood, the rocks, the dirt, and even all that water in the trench. Game over. Have you been keeping score? Baal, zero. God, everything. Verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Prostrate means they fell face forward, their arms stretched out, noses in the dirt, in total surrender to the Lord. The people knew what I would be thinking if I was there. That fire could have just as easily consumed them. But God is always so 
kind and loving and patient with us. When the people saw the truth, they surrendered themselves to God and declared the Lord, He is God. This is still how we're saved today. Thousands of years later, this is still how we're saved. When we see the truth, we surrender to Jesus and say, the Lord, He is God. So with that smoke and the smell of that holy fire still lingering in the air, Elijah gave one more command. We'll close with this. Verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Every one of the false priests paid for their sin with their lives. If Elijah had lost, he would have been killed. If killing the false prophets of Baal seems brutal, it's because it is. But it's in keeping with the law of Moses that came straight from the word of God himself. Let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. Very powerful, very clear message from God. Deuteronomy 13, 4 and 5 says, It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That false prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Okay, so what do we do with this story? I think the message is clear that the Lord God takes our worship of him and him alone very seriously. And so must we. I'm stepping away from the pulpit because I'm in the same place as all of you. Don't think this is easy. I'm saying it because I've mastered this. But here's the message for us. We have to make a decision. We have to decide who we're going to follow. The greatest commandment is to give the Lord everything we have, heart, soul, and mind. Is that what we're doing? Are we giving God everything? Are we serving him wholeheartedly? Or are we serving him half-heartedly or part-heartedly, three-quarters partly? It is so subtle in our world, but we, we serve the Lord one moment, then it's just so easy to get led astray, and before we know it, we're worshiping another God. It could be our careers. It could be our health. It could be anything. It could be our ministries. It could be our families. It could be anything that suddenly is taking our attention, and it is getting our love and attention more than the Lord is. And this kind of indecision will ruin our lives. And if we have never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, then this kind of indecision will destroy any hope we have for eternal life. We have to decide today. We have to decide. You and I today, right now, have to answer Elijah's question. That's where this story is taking us. We have to answer the question, who will you follow? Next week, we'll finish this story, and there's a big plot twist coming. And right now in your life, or if you've ever had been in a situation where your life makes absolutely no sense to you, you look at it and you ask yourself, how in the world did I get here? What is this supposed to mean? If you've ever been there, or are there now, or if you've ever been in a place where you are so depressed, you feel so broken, so hurt, so discouraged, so defeated, you do not want to miss next week when the Lord and Elijah show us an amazing truth as we finish the story. Our prayer team is going to be up here in a moment to pray with you after the service. If you want prayer for anything at all, please come up. We'd love to pray with you. 
We keep all these requests very private. And now let's close in prayer ourselves. Dear Father, thank you that we can be in a church where we can open your word and you can teach it to us. Father, I pray, knowing that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, you are the one true God, just as you proved in 850 B.C., you're proving today. You are the only true God, Lord, and you have asked us to make a choice. And I pray, pray, please, do not let any of us leave this building today without choosing to follow you. We ask this in the name that is above every name on earth and in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.